I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Hello. We're coming to you from Zoom today, so yeah, I apologize for any weird cadence. Yeah, we think we might be on a delay with each other, but hopefully it won't be, yeah, too weird. But anyways... Well, I've been told we talk very fast anyway, so perhaps it'll be a blessing. Yes, this will be good. We'll have some time to, like, marinate in between. (laughs) But it's been a while since we've done an episode, and I think there are, like, a few reasons for that. Yeah, we took a little break. Yeah, for one thing, I moved into a house, so that was a a big project, but I'm so happy to finally be settled. Mm -hmm. And that was also kind of coinciding with, like, the end of the school year. So there was that, but... (laughs) But we've also been busy really trying to show up um, at Black Lives Matter protests and educate ourselves and listen and use our platforms, particularly Molly, your your wonderful work on Instagram, (laughs) to create uh, an environment of trust and understanding and change. Yeah, and I also think, I think... I, we didn't, you and I didn't like talk about this in particular, but I think that both of us kind of felt like it would, it was just felt more appropriate to sort of take that time and like not be like, hey, it's us. Do you guys want to talk about, you know, Kim Kardashian? Like it just, yeah, it just felt, it felt like um, an appropriate sort of like pause where we kind of tried to, like Sarah said be more present in what everything that's happening. You just mentioned my work on Instagram. I would like to mention, too, uh, I hope you guys caught the day that we um, participated in the hashtag share the mic now. And our friend Love Wallace took over Instagram for the day. Uh, it was wonderful. If you didn't get to see it, there's a little bit. Uh, she did She did do a post, but you can follow her, too, at lwalla one Um, And she's been doing some great work. We really appreciated that as well. Yeah, and I would like to lead by saying, too, that I've had a lot of conversations about this being a problem created by white people. And so it's a problem that should be addressed by white people. And I think I grappled with that a little in the beginning um, because I said, who am I to speak out on this? You know, no one wants to hear from me right now. They want to hear from the black community. And that's the the voice, the collective voice people, these like abstract people will be <laughs> most receptive to. And that was wrong. And I think that's what this short conversation is going to be about. That like, Molly, you and I are really trying our best. I think a lot of people are, but we're going to make mistakes along the way. Yeah. Oh. I, I know it's, it is the weird delay. Like, I was just saying we are by no means like we're not the experts on any of this. Right. Like we are taking no history and, you know, recent lessons and also just that goes to sort of what Sarah was saying about how, like, di- I think it is appropriate, like you said, to step aside and like amplify and center the voices of black people. Um, and particularly, I think for us, we're kind of trying to focus on black women because we do try to focus on women, um, but it is also like up to us to be, to be accountable to ourselves, to be accountable to our audience, um, and to try and show solidarity in a way that doesn't feel necess- self-serving, even though that is really hard, I think, to do. Yeah, they're not hard because, like, you know, whatever. But it's just it's a it's a strange line. But I feel like 
I don't know. You just have to try and try your best, <laughs> like you said. Yeah. Well, and that's why I am so grateful to love and a number of other people in mm -hmm. my life who took the time to help educate me and answer my questions because as as love put it, like black women are exhausted explaining to white women what behavior is acceptable or mm -hmm. what's wrong in society or what microaggressions are a presence in their life. Like we need to do our own research because it, love said, you know, it's it's exhausting. And so her willingness to be patient with us was really special, <laughs> yeah. I felt. Um, and it is it is emotional labor. So it's something, right, where we have to take it upon ourselves to, like, like use Google. Some of these things are simple enough, too. Like, some of them, it, some of, there are certain things that are very helpful to have conversations about. But there are so many things. And this isn't just, like, us. I mean, like, to anyone who's listening. Like, Google stuff. There are so many resources out there. I'm actually going to talk a little bit in a, in a minute about some of the um, resources and the people in particular online that I have learned, you know, innumerable things from over the years. But there's so much on the Internet and in at the library, I you agree. know, and like this isn't just like this isn't new stuff. It's stuff going back 20 years. It's stuff going back 50 years. It's stuff going back 100 years or, you know, 400, depending on where we're starting. Not everyone, like, is a reader. Like, not everyone is going to, like, sit down and read stuff because that's just not how everyone takes in information or chooses to spend their time to. So I do think it is important to talk about podcasts or TV shows or documentaries that are also helpful. Yeah, I knew that if I ordered a copy of White Fragility, I would let it sit on my bookshelf um, and go, that's not beach reading or right. something. But I know that I, I listen really well. I love audiobooks, mm -hmm. especially when the content is difficult. So I bought the audiobook and I've been working my way through, you know. And so sometimes when things I know are going to be challenging for me intellectually, um, I would prefer an audiobook. Yeah. But yeah, there's not one right, one right way to do it, definitely. And you mentioned centering. So well, one of the things that was highlighted on the Pop It Instagram on the Share the Mic day mm -hmm. was the idea of an intersection between white feminism and racism. And that was something that I wasn't super familiar with, but it's this idea that there's an overrepresentation of straight, white, middle-class women, which really describes the two of us, yeah. I would say, at this point in our lives in feminism and when that's taken to an extreme it becomes toxic white feminism in which women of color's voices are only ampl amplified when there's like a certain agenda to be furthered that will impact white women um and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that intersection yeah absolutely i mean and that goes all the way back to the suffragist movement that goes back to like susan b anthony purposefully excluding black women from the idea that women could vote. When women got the right to vote, not all women got the right to vote. White women specifically fought for, many of them fought for themselves. There were a few um, suffragists who felt that they did want to include other women, but, um, so that's, you know, that's a hundred years ago. This isn't something that's new. Um, it goes into the history of white women's tears causing, like, material harm to black people. Like, the woman who accused Emmett Till of whistling at her 
which resulted in his lynching at the age of 14. Even in the 70s, like Shirley Chisholm is the first black U.S. congresswoman. She she couldn't get her own group, her own group, which um, the like Women's Political Caucus, which included Gloria Steinem at the time. Um, Betty Friedan was a part of it. Um, Bella Abzug, they didn't even agree to all back her that in her presidential run because it, they didn't think it was worth it by the time they got to the convention to like quote unquote throw away their votes she felt she's like why am I the only one they're not listening to so yeah it's a big long it's a big long history of all that I'm glad that you mentioned Emmett Till mm-hmm. because as a teacher the most important unit that I think I engaged in with my students as an English teacher came from an organization called Facing History, and we talked about Emmett Till's lynching, Mm -hmm. also the busing Boston saga that took place right down the road not very long ago. And that is a great organization if you're a teacher. I think that Facing History and Ourselves, is that the one? That's it. And they're doing a lot of virtual work right now. But if your school won't pay for it, they'll provide you a scholarship. If you're thinking, I'm not a history teacher, I'm a PE teacher or (laughs) an art teacher, they don't care. They'll still take you on. And once you take one of their trainings, you have access to their resource library for life. So, like, I noticed that in my previous district, our book closet didn't have any diverse titles. And so Facing History provided 100 copies for all of my students of Warriors Don't Cry. So that's a great organization if you're a teacher. Well, there is a great article in The Atlantic today, too, called What Anti-Racist Teachers Do Differently, and I really enjoyed reading that. It's written by a black principal, and um, it just said that like it's so important to think of yourself as the teacher, as the one that might not be serving the needs of your students. Like, what's problematic about my own practice based on the patterns I've identified when I do disaggregate data to look at attendance or grades based on ethnicity? Um, that, like, I need to be thinking, My it's not that my students aren't motivated or they're not prepared, right? It's something that I'm not fulfilling, a need I'm not fulfilling. That, yeah, that is awesome. That actually reminds me of the like universal design for learning, which looks similarly, not necessarily at like race or ethnicity, but at different like learning disabilities and different levels where you do you design, you look at the curriculum and say, that's what the problem is. The curriculum's not expansive enough. We're not adapting to what kids need. Well, I like that you just said that because I think white saviorism, when I'm examining my own history and my own behavior, like that's something that I'm certainly guilty of. And I look mm-hmm. at the television shows that I would watch about teaching during my formative years, right? Like Boston Public. Oh my God, um, I loved Boston Public. <laughs> me too, but like looking back, it's very, very problematic. And I worked at an organization whose mission was dedicated to serving at-risk kids from the city of Worcester, um, most of whom were black and brown children. And I would you know, program the in-service training and the orientation, we had a predominantly white staff and I never addressed microaggressions with my staff. You know, we never talked about white privilege. And these are things that I'm embarrassed about, but like, 
I hope I can learn from and and look right. forward at a, a better a better way of approaching that, especially when I'm working with high school aged kids to train them to work with younger kids. Absolutely. And it's like, right, it's like, okay, it's too late now, but how do we fix it, right? Like, how do you move forward? Is there anything that you, looking back on, are thinking like, wow, I, I you know, I thought I was doing a good thing, my intentions were oh, good, yeah. but now I wish I had done that a little differently? Absolutely. I mean, when I was in high school and college, I was very into the, like, Darfur, like... Me too. Oh, you could, like, go to Africa and save them. I think that that's a very common thing, I think, especially among, like, high school age, like, white people even if you're not involved in any kind of because I do think a lot of times it does tie into a mission type thing like a church thing but I think that it happens regardless I remember like Ryan Gosling wearing his like Darfur t-shirt to the VMAs so and I think that that's like deeply ingrained in I don't you know American culture probably maybe particularly but just yeah I th- and I, that goes back to colonialism right it's like we destroy all these countries and then we go back and we're like let us help you <laughs> but yeah I'm absolutely guilty of that I thought that if I raised two thousand dollars for whatever then you know I was saving a kid like <laughs> you get a gold absolutely. star and it's like right exactly and it's like what material good is that actually doing for you know a Rwandan mother or something like that um but yeah uh for sure I thought that and a lot of that for me changed my views on a lot of that changed I got like I got like heavy into the there was sort of like a big feminist blogosphere bubble like in the late aughts I would say I got like real deep into the sort of that digital feminism wave I feel like for me there were a few people in particular where like Mickey Kendall a woman who goes by just the Trudes. She doesn't use her last name online. Um, in particular, like a few people like that, Jamie Nesbitt Golden and Imani Gandhi, where I finally started to just like read people who weren't white, essentially, is what it was. It wasn't even like, oh, I started to like listen. It was just like, I was like, oh, like, <laughs> you know, it's not all just like white ladies writing on Jezebel or feministing. It's like a whole world of this. And I remember at that time, there was a big. There were lots of big to-dos, and a lot of it had to do with, like you brought up before, that the centering of white women's voices and when it does become toxic. And I think that there is still some some interesting divisions there. But Mickey Kendall uh, started a hashtag, I remember. It was hashtag solidarity is for white women. It started in response to a specific event where there was a, a white man who was praised for being like a great feminist and he was actually like very abusive to women of color um, and particularly black women online but all these white women were like oh he's a great man he's a good man like he's a feminist and then finally all this stuff came out about him being like predatory to students and stuff and then all of these white women they, women who wrote for the guardian and feministing and all that were like oh um so like you know you guys were right you guys are all in solidarity with this white man until it looks bad for you, right? Much like the Me Too sort of hashtag came up a few years ago of just a, like women of color, particularly black women um, and black trans women coming out and, and like giving specific instances where this was the case. And I remember just be, like, it, it took me on a trip and I had sort of an instance that you did where I was like, whoa, I just had to like re-engineer my brain. Because to me, I was like, these ladies are my heroes. Um, Jessica Valenti and Amanda Marcotte, I thought they were so brilliant. And then I remember being like, oh, crap. (laughs) 
how do we look at like the inter um, personal interactions within the world of feminism? And I've been trying to diversify my feed too, because particularly during the coronavirus, we're also isolated. Our window to the world in many ways is still on our devices. And so thinking about um, increasing the number of black creators that I'm following has been important mm -hmm. and indigenous creators and people of color, you know, one thing that I noticed, and I wonder if this is something similar for you, um, I follow, like I said, like all these women on Twitter, but my Instagram, I, f I do a lot of, like, I follow a lot of, like, food, um, food mm -hmm. blogs and food writing, and I looked and I was like, oh my god, I follow one black woman in the food world, like, of all black people, not just men and, like, men and women, and I was like, how, you know, how can that be, right? So that was a big one for me is the food world. And we have talked a little bit on and offline about sort of what's been going on with that. But that's that was a big thing for me as I was like, whoa. Yeah. Just to summarize, Bon Appetit drew particular attention to this issue um, because mm. it came to light that they were not paying their creators who are a part of an incredibly popular segment, uh, the Bon Appetit yep. Test Kitchen videos. And mm -hmm. so people kind of dug into the gentleman who was editor the executive editor yeah Adam Rappaport the, right the editor <laughs> they found yeah. um an image of him in brown face but um, at any rate he has stepped down um something similar is going on in our region too with Phantom Gourmet the president oh, yeah. of Phantom Gourmet said problematic things and now his mm -hmm. board has actually fired him terminated him and even going to, like, Alison Roman a couple weeks before all of this, like, where hers was more of, like, a microaggression, which we have kind of addressed. But, like, she just happened to choose two women of color in an interview to be the ones that she sort of went on about. And then a few, and then people were like, yeah, she kind of has a history of being crappy <laughs> about race. And that yeah. was, like, I feel like that sort of pre pre precipitated some of the stuff that sort of, like, rolled out, which was interesting. Definitely. <laughs> now, are there people on the internet that you want to highlight in particular? Mickey Kendall and Jamie Nesbitt Golden, they used to have a podcast. Uh, Mickey has a book out called Hood Feminism. She's she's a, like really like a nerd writer. Like this, She writes sci-fi and she writes comic books. She's so awesome. Um, Trudy's not... Trudy quit Twitter, which is good for her because she just did so much emotional labor, but she writes... She's a prolific writer. She has a Patreon. Um, she's at the Trudes. I feel like those two in particular really are the ones who kind of flipped my whole world upside down. <laughs> One that I wanted to mention, my friend Gina Fletcher, she had been talking to me yes. a little bit about the subject of black women's hair, and she sent me an account. Uh, the woman's... She's a performing artist. Her name is Mengwei, so it's at... M-E-N-G-W-E. -E. Mm -hmm. And she had just a really profound post that summarized, you know, why it is that it's not okay to walk up to a black woman and ask to touch her hair. And she said, unsolicited touching of black people's hair makes us feel uncomfortable. Stop petting us like we're animals. Yeah, it's exoticizing. And she was like, that doesn't mean... Yeah, you can still ask meaningful questions without badgering, but like don't assume otherness in your remarks and make black women feel like exhibits. Um, mm -hmm. And then she gave a bunch of examples in which women, black women were expelled from school or suspended from school for their braids um, or having dreadlocks. And she even shared a story about Banana Republic where the manager 
told mm. one of his employees that her braids were not B- Banana Republic appropriate and he wouldn't give her any more shifts until she changed her hair. So I just, I think that that's something interesting to think about when you ask to touch someone's hair. There's so much subtext to that. It's not about like inconvenience. There's just this deep rooted, like you said, exoticism. Yeah, it's so fraught. I mean, and like, I am guilty too. Like this is going back to high school. I grew up in a smaller town, which has its own, has had its own issues. I had a friend in particular where we would always... We would say things to her um, like, oh, yeah, you're just like, you're you're so white. You're like an Oreo, which is like, I think about that now and I'm like, oh, my God, that's so othering. And it's so I imagine that even if you would laugh at that, like we thought it was just the way that you talk to your friends. And I remember saying things like, oh, I wish my hair was like that. Or why don't you wear your hair natural? I think it would look so pretty. And like, that's not my, you know, like that's not like. My call, and also at the time, I obviously had no idea how, like you said, how much subtext and how fraught that subject is to black women, um, the subject of their hair. There's a great documentary about that called Good Hair. I think Chris Rock produced it. Um, That sort of goes into the history of, like, black women's presentation. It's none of my business, in addition to being, like, pretty Mm. racist. And you brought up the issue of colorblindness, which is something that I talked to Magdalene Bargiolo about at Mm. length, and she has organized two of the large-scale rallies that Molly and I attended in the last couple of weeks. And she just said, you know, the idea of colorblindness, it totally negates the fact that there's an actual issue that white people should be acknowledging. So, I mean, I think we all grew up uh, no, I shouldn't say we all. This is the problem, right? Right. I grew yes, up absolutely. In an environment where my teachers and my parents and everyone always said, we're all equal. We're all equal. There's no difference between us. But that's fundamentally incorrect because mm-hmm. I'm not dealing with the prejudice that a woman of color is. And so that's something right. that should be acknowledged. You know, we're we're not the same she's going through this traumatic daily experience and that's something that I should be accounting for and like right and the system is telling you no you're not the same the way that this society was built which is literally on the backs of slaves is telling you no you're not equal to this white girl so you mentioned Magdalene Margiolo she spoke so beautifully at last week's event that we went to and we are lucky enough to have an interview with her for this episode, right, Sarah? Yeah, and it also ran in the Telegram and Worcester Mag, so yes. if you want the full text, it's available. She is powerful. Like, I've just, like, even just from she looking is. at her Instagram, just, like, even her imagery, I feel, is very powerful. Yeah, she is so much more uh, driven and outspoken than I was when I was her age. She just graduated college. She's class of 2020. And I have been blown away and learned a lot from her. Um, And she's so young, you know. And before we sign off, I just want to say again, I probably said something wrong in the last 20 minutes. And please, (laughs) if you're listening and you're like, wow, Sarah, that was really stupid or that was really racist, (laughs) please tell me. Yeah, because I uh, am so far from perfect and I'm starting to really examine myself, my behavior, my language, and I need help with that. So if you have the energy, I'm all ears. Yes, and it's a process where like it's, Everything is a is a living 
it's a process. But yeah, I think that that's really important. I think part of the reason that we wanted to have this discussion with each other and with you guys is just to be like, you have to actually put work in. <sighs> All right. Well, let's agree <laughs> to keep putting in the work, Malls. Yes. Please enjoy this interview with the brilliant Maggie Bardolo. Fabulous. I have been Molly. I have been Sarah. And this is Maggie. Um, all right, we are recording. So I was hoping you could just start by giving me a little background on yourself. How long have you been in Worcester? Where did you go to school? Okay, well, my name is Magdalene Bargello. I'm 21 years old. Um, I was born and raised in Worcester, Massachusetts. I went to the Advanced Math and Science Academy in Marlboro, Massachusetts, and I attended St. John's University um, in Queens, New York, and I'm class 2020. That's awesome. Congratulations. It must have been a really strange graduation year. It was, but, you know, uh, things happen for a reason. I'm just grateful to have my degree. Yeah, and you'll never forget it, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to hear a little bit about just the planning process and the organizing that went into the rally on Monday. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, honestly, I think that the entire event was like it happened because of God honestly I remember sitting in my room just having this like heavy feeling on my heart like wow I really want to do something I want to be able to amplify the voices of like people that look like me because it feels as if right now no one's listening um and I was thinking about like how can I do that so I called my friend and I was like hey I want to like have a protest I want to do something he's like yeah let's do it um so I contacted my teacher from high school. I contacted like two other friends and just like told them like here's what I, this is what I want to do. Am I crazy? And they're like, no, you're not crazy. So then next thing you know, I'm I'm being contacted by this person and that person, and then I get into contact with the councilman, and things started to come together. That's awesome. Yeah, Christian King um, seems to have really helped to amplify your voice in particular and, and make it happen. What was his role? Um, basically, he was kind of like, he kind of like helped things come together in terms of like getting us access to certain things and connecting us with the right people um, and just making sure that um, our message was clear and what we wanted to say was very clear. Because it's my first time, like, I do a lot of activism work um, within the city of New York and also, like, at my high school that I went to mm-hmm. um, on behalf of myself. So, like, he, because it was my first time doing or having this protest, um, he kind of, like, helped me, gave me, like, the ropes and things I needed to know in order to kind of, like, make this event happen. That's awesome. And... The speaking portion, there were so many people there. So I'm curious if you guys have a sense of crowd. Um, I'm a really bad judge of that. I was like, I think there's like 5,000 people, but I have no idea. Yeah, I was told it was between like 6,000. And I was like, wow, that's actually like crazy to me. Yeah. I've never spoken to that many people before in my entire life. I was wondering if you could just kind of summarize what sort of message you were hoping people walked away from in terms of the speaking portion, because I know it was hard for some people to hear since it was so successful. There were so many people. Mm-hmm. I just wanted 
personally for me, I wanted people to know that um, the struggle of black people is not just is not just um, through one lens, it's through so many different lenses and because there's so many different perspectives and experiences and that, you know, just because, just because, you know, black men and women um, and even children are not killed on a daily basis in the street in Worcester does not mean that racism doesn't exist here. It's within the healthcare system, it's within the education system, it's in different aspects of our daily lives. And it's time that we realize and we acknowledge that, you know, the oppression that black people face and the injustices that we face is not something that's, that's only within the state of Minnesota, or it's not only in um, Atlanta. It's also in Massachusetts, specifically in Worcester. Um, and it's time that we kind of stop thinking in a um, stop using the ideology of colorblindness to kind of um, repress our guilt and kind of uh, forget about, you know, where we came from and the history that's been re- reoccurring. Well, I'm so appreciative. I mean, one thing some of my friends have said to me, like, it's not my job to educate you, you know, and I'm happy to do that for you, Sarah, or whatever, but just don't expect the black people in the community to like stop what they're doing and put a lot of effort into educating you as a white woman, like we're exhausted. Um, And that really stuck with me. But I am curious, you know, you've given me the time to do this interview. And I really, really appreciate that. What would you like white allies in Worcester to know? Um, And what are you looking for from us? Um, for one, I would say that I want you guys to know that you don't have to be black to amplify black voices, that it's okay to be privileged. There's nothing you can do um, with the privilege that you have, but it's how you use your privileges if that dictates the type of person you are. It's whether you're willing to recognize your privilege and say that I'm willing to use it to support my black brothers and sisters, or if you're going to use it for yourself. I think that, like you said, it's not a black person's job to educate white people on racism. We cannot dismantle something we did not build. And I think that white people need to go into their own communities and educate their own people on racism and the issues that black people and marginalized people face in this country. I would also say that during this time, that people are protesting, like, be wise of your intentions. If you're a white person that's going to these protests, go with a clear heart and a sound mind to learn to learn, and to also hear the stories of other people. Do not infiltrate these these areas to use these protests to, um, to do other things that are not for the movement, because at the end of the day, violence, and black people have always been synonymous in which it's not. And a lot of people who are not a part of the movement are using this movement to loot and to be violent and things like that. And it's making the, the protesters who are actually protesting, it's defeating the purpose of, what, of, of why they're protesting. Um, and also, just to reiterate, like saying that you're colorblind and that you don't see color and that you treat everyone as equal is a slap in the face to the black community and other um, marginalized groups because it's saying that our struggles are not real and that the reasons to why people are dying, black people specifically are dying in the streets, is not because of racism, it's because of other things, when in reality that's not the case. Um, that's just what I would say. Thank you. I think you bring forth your message with so much clarity, which is really important with something so emotional, you know? 
and I guess my only other question is I was so proud of our city for being yeah. peaceful, you know, and it was, it was such a huge gathering. And I also was impressed that the police chief was there and took a knee. And, and then in the evening, some other events unfolded with like a really small group of protesters. And I still am not clear on whether or not they were from the community or any of that. And I, I said that to a friend of mine, love, and she goes, Sarah, that's just noise. That has nothing to do with the mission. Like, I don't know. How are you feeling about the unrest that happened on Monday night later in the evening? Um, for starters, I think that um, there is this agenda to kind of dictate how black people protest. And I think the peaceful protest is something that um, obviously, I think the peaceful protest is something that people are trying to kind of like put over our heads. Like, oh, make sure you, you protest peacefully, like as if you know, black people have not been protesting peacefully for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's not one way for people to express their pain and their hurt. And though I don't agree with any violence, I think that people need to understand as to why people act violently. You cannot tell people to protest peacefully when they've been when they're going through their own genocide. You cannot tell people not to cry or scream when they're going through their own genocide. The group that did continue to protest was separate from the event that took place. Um, these were kids. I don't really know much about what took place on the South, but from what I saw, these it was a really small group of kids um, that you know were protesting. Um, things did take a different turn, but I think people need to understand that. Like, remember the reason as to why people are protesting. Do not focus on material things and vanity. Um, Remember that black lives have been lost in the streets, um, in the hospitals due to COVID-19 and how we are disproportionately affected by that. And I think that this is not just due to the fact that, you know, George Floyd died. It's due to 500 years of oppression and injustices and slavery and all the other things and other byproducts of racism that we've been facing. Um, So I think that people focusing solely on the violence and solely on the fact that, like, damage was done is kind of it's not it's counteractive it's not helping the situation because you're forgetting the root of the problem and you're looking at the root of the issue and it's like white supremacy and racism is is the issue here and that's why we are protesting thank you thank you